Hi, this is Mario Andretti. Mark Blundell. Mark Priestley. Claire Cottingham. Ben Edwards. Jamie Chadwick. Mark Gallagher. Freddie Hunt. Bobby Eaton. Greg Scarborough. Alex Brundle. You're listening to... And you're listening to... You're listening to... Everything F1. Everything F1. Everything F1. Everything F1 podcast. Driven. Driven. Driven, driven by fans. For fans. And welcome to the Everything F1 podcast. My name is Sean, and joining me tonight is Connor. Hi, Connor. Hi, how's it going? I am very well. We have a very, very special guest joining us tonight. But just before we say hello to that special guest, just to let you know, of course, we are Everything F1. Be sure to find us on all socials Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok at JoinEF1. And check out our website, www.everythingf1.com. Especially at the moment, we have lots of news and articles going up every day. Obviously, F1 is back now with testing, and the season starts very soon. So we are ramping up all of our output across all of our channels. So be sure you like, follow, subscribe, and all of that good stuff to everything that we are doing. As I said, then, we are joined by a very special guest tonight. We are joined by IndyCar racing driver Stingray Rob. Hi, Sting. How are you? Thanks very much for joining us. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure. Now, for those listeners on this side of the pond, to whom IndyCar is still a little bit new, tell us about yourself. So, yeah, I guess probably the first thing that catches people's attention is my name. Stingray is obviously a pretty unique name, but I was pretty blessed. My parents were big Corvette fans, and so when I was born... They decided to pass their passion for for Corvettes along to me through my name. And so I'm named after the Stingray Corvette. That's a short story. Long story is is that my dad's side of the family's heritage is from Stirlingshire, Scotland. So Sting is actually short for Sterling. And then both of my grandfathers, they had Ray in their name. It was Ray Rob and then Philip Ray Davis. So we took all that to find it. And here I am a race car driver. But yeah, IndyCar is quite a journey to get to. I mean, as a, a local boy from Idaho, small town, I graduated high school with a class of less less than 100 people. And so not too many people can say that they, they've not only made it to IndyCar, but have made it to IndyCar from Idaho. And it's a long journey. I mean, I started out in go-karts when I was five. And then I worked my way up through the ranks. I won the well, we have touted the the triple crown of championships in the U.S. here with the West Coast Can-Am Karting Challenge, which is the Canadian and American, as well as the Florida Winter Tour, which is the East Coast. And so I had a good career in karting. And then 2016, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. You know, I'd watched the Senna documentary and seen all the F1 and, you know, that had been my passion and what I wanted to be like. And I mean, amongst other things, you know, F1 was the pinnacle of open wheel racing at that time. And IndyCar was, you know, something that intrigued me because it was on the state side. I wanted to stay home and it seemed like the competition level was very high, but I didn't know if that was for sure what I wanted to do. So 2016 was kind of my transition year from carts to cars. At the time I was driving for the CRG factory team in Italy in the KZ2 category. And then I did a few races here and there. And then in the meantime, I was also doing dirt track races. I was doing some, what is now called the ARCA series NASCAR I was also doing the Skip Barber series, some open wheel, and then obviously a couple of sports cars just at driving schools. And so after I did all that, I decided the formula, formula cars is what I wanted to commit to. And so for the 2017 season, I ran in what was known as the Road to Indy, which is the ladder system of IndyCar, similar to F1's you know, F series. You have F4, F3, F2, F1. But it's really nice because we're racing on all the same weekends as IndyCar. And so you're rubbing elbows with the guys that you're hoping to one day be racing against. And in 2020, I won the Indy 2000 championship. 
which is, uh, I guess, American for the F3 championship, <laughs> same level there. And then got the scholarship to move to Indy Lights, which is on, on par with F2. And then last year, I finished second in that Indy Lights category and then got a chance to move up to IndyCar this year as a rookie. Fantastic. So where, where did it kind of all begin? Where does your kind of love of motorsport come from? Who were your heroes growing up? Yeah, I mean, like I said, my parents were big Corvette fans. And so I actually took my first steps at a Corvette club meeting. And so I, I didn't know anything different. Like, I thought that's just what people did. You'd spend time around cool, old, fast cars. My dad did a little drag racing. My parents both did a little autocross. And uh, I remember hearing stories from a driver named Dick Goldstrand. And he used to drive in the Le Mans series with Penske in the, in the Corvette. And, you know, it's kind of funny now, like, looking back, the, the new Ford versus Ferrari movies come out. And he was in that same era. And so some of the stories that they're telling us in the movie are the same stories that I heard when I was like two or three or four years old sitting on his lap, you know, thinking back to the, the Le Mans days for him. And so I was kind of inundated with just cool cars from a young age. And the reason I actually got into go-karting, so I was watching a Nitro Circus video when I was like four years old, which is chaotic. I don't know why my parents <laughs> let me watch a Nitro Circus video, but I'm sure most people have heard of Travis Pastrana. He's a, a legendary athlete in motorsports. I mean, he's very well-rounded in supercross, motocross, rally racing. He just did the Daytona 500. But I watched a video of him in that Nitro Circus video jumping a go-kart into a foam pit. And that was like, that is what I want to do. <laughs> and so as a four-year-old, I'm like, I'm not telling my mom this, but I told her, I'm like, mom, I want to go-kart. And I wasn't going to tell her, like, I'm going to build a foam pit. I'm going to jump it. That didn't end up happening, but that's what I wanted. And then when I got into racing, you know, there was always big karting events where we'd see the big names. You know, Michael Schumacher came to the Super Nats in Las Vegas one year. And for a young driver, that's pretty inspiring because, I mean, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And for a young driver, I think that seeing those people and seeing them as people first and then realizing who they were kind of allowed me to put it into context of like, no, this is something that's achievable and that I can do this. And it's a dream that not only am I going to live and going to be able to achieve, it's very realistic. So I don't know. I think that my passion for racing was just built throughout my career in karting. And I had heroes here and there. I mean, sometimes it was go-karters. Sometimes it was IndyCar drivers. Sometimes it was F1 drivers. It just, I mean, all, all over the place. There, there was legends that were walking around the paddock it seemed like you didn't have to look very stingray i'd just like to ask as growing up who was your hero in in mode sport as such yeah i don't think that i could say one person but i loved the senate documentary and so for me that was like the first glimpse into like what it really meant to be an f1 driver you know i'd see the races and watch them on tv but i didn't understand their personalities and so i really held on to aaron senna a lot i thought that he was someone that i could look up to even non-drivers agree with you on that one. When you were coming up through the ranks from your young days in karts, were you instantly, naturally quick? Did you feel like you had that just intrinsic ability? Or is this something you've worked your ass off for several years to achieve what you have on top of any latent skill or, or ingrained ability? Yeah. I mean, I can't speak too much from my early days, but I know that my parents saw something in me that maybe I didn't see myself. I think that they saw that I was so engaged at the racetrack. They knew that that's what I wanted to be doing. And I think that further, the obsession will take you a lot further than talent. And, you know, one thing that I learned pretty early on, there's a book called The Outliers. And it's by Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you guys know it, but it talks about the 
10,000 hour rule. Mm-hmm. And you have to spend 10,000 hours doing whatever it may be, any, any sort of discipline, whether it's flying a plane, flying a kite, cooking, hiking, you have to spend that time before you can be great at it. And so my dad pounded that, that process into my head of like, we're going to put you in the seat and you're going to just get seat and get to that 10,000 hour mark as fast as possible. And so there was, there was weekends or sorry, years during my, my early days that we were, we were gone 42 out of the 52 weekends a year, you know, on the road at go-kart races or traveling to and from, et cetera. So there was definitely a lot of work put in. And so I won't say that I'm naturally talented. I honestly, I don't believe in talent once you're at this far into the sport. I think that there's guys that have done certain things a certain way that makes them have certain ability, but you don't get here on accident, you know? So I'm going to say that we worked hard for it and there's still more work to be done. I think that's great to hear. And I think you're right. I think anyone, you know, I think even Lewis Hamilton would say that he hasn't got to be a seven-time world champion purely on talent. He has worked extremely hard. Obviously, Michael Schumacher, the same, Ayrton Senna. Um, how did you get spotted to make the jump to, to IndyCar? Is it, like you said, because you're in and around the, the teams every week? Like, what kind of conversations were had that landed you the drive then for, for this year? Oh, man, that's tough because there's a lot that happened during the off season. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously going from Indy Lights to IndyCar is just one step away, but there's not a lot of open doors, as we know. I mean, we, we see it on both sides of the pond, right? Like there's young drivers that are up and coming that may not get an opportunity in F1 or IndyCar because there's just not that many openings. The field is so deep with drivers and they stay there for a long time. I mean, there's, there's guys racing in IndyCar that have been there since I was pretty much born. So <laughs> it's crazy to think like that they're still pushing a limit and still winning races that way. But, you know, last year I finished second in the Indy Lights, which has changed the name. It's now the Indy Next Championship. And that was that was awesome. But there was a, a conversation somewhere along the way, whether or not it was worth it to stay one more year in the mm-hmm. series versus moving on in IndyCar and taking a risk of not doing anything. You know, once you commit to to not staying that extra year, you're mm-hmm. you're committing to me getting that ride in any car. And so leaving Laguna Seca, which was our finale weekend, I had a race win and I think seven or eight podiums on the season. And so like pretty good results, but it was like a consideration of, okay, how much better can we do? I finished second in the championship and not lose my stock value essentially. Right. And there's a lot of variables going into the off season that we knew about already. They, they changed the tire compound for this season, 2023 from last season. And so with that, the team that I was with in Dreddy Autosport, they may not be the best team. You know, there's always the risk of someone new coming in and doing better than them that just adapts quicker. And we saw that actually early on in spring spring testing here. Um, it looked like Cape Motorsports and Humcos were the two best teams with HMD, HMD being a close third. And then Andretti was fourth. And it just kind of reverses the tables every time you change those variables. And so considering all those things and not wanting to take the risk of lowering my stock value, because even if I finish second in the championship again, or even if I win, um, my stock value is not going to change a whole lot. And, you know, winning doesn't do a whole lot for you considering what happened to Linus Lundqvist this last season. You know, he won, won the championship and he's not in a, in a seat anywhere. And so it's just a matter of what, what are you going to take the risk on? Take it now or take it later? And so we decided to take it now, take that leap of faith and make a run at IndyCar. And so during the off season, we were talking to a few teams and, you know, a couple of them were part-time, a couple of them were full-time and we didn't really know where I was going to land. 
But at some point I was at Pit Fit, which is the gym that most of the drivers train at out here in Indianapolis. And Linus Lundquist was also there. And the team that he was with this previous season was HMD Racing. And they had an affiliation with Dale Coyne Racing, which is the team that I'm now signed to. And so I expected him, after winning the championship, would be a perfect shoe-in into their second or third car, depending on if they were going to add one or whatever. And in our conversation, he, he mentioned that he didn't have a ride yet. And I said, oh, so you're, you're not going to IndyCar? I thought the Dale Coyne deal was like a done deal. It's like, no, like it's not how it happened. And we're working on it. But for now, it doesn't look like anything's going to, going to happen for next season. Well, I immediately <laughs> ran out of the gym after my workout. And I called my manager. and was like, Peter, uh, we need to get Dale Coyne on the phone. I heard that there's an open seat. Let's see what we can do. And we started conversations at this point. I think Marcus Armstrong was set to, to test for them at Sebring. And then Daniel Frost as well. So there was a long waiting period. And it was a slow offseason, it seemed like, where we were still talking to a couple other teams and couldn't settle on a test date. And then somewhere around Christmas time, and everyone drags their feet around the holidays, it seems like. There's not much that's going on around Christmas or New Year's. But I got a phone call from a journalist. And he asked, he's like, hey, Stingray, like I've been hearing some rumors. Sounds like there's some promising things in the works. What can you tell me? You know, I told him the spiel of like, I don't know anything yet, but it is looking promising. We're talking to a few teams, but I'm sure that you'll be one of the first ones to know. I said, yeah, that's great to hear. I'm sure when they sober up from their World Cup win, they'll be giving you a call. <laughs> well, Argentina won the World Cup. Now, Juncos Hollinger Racing is from Argentina. And so I assumed that he was talking about them. I said, yeah, maybe. We'll see. And uh, he's like, all right, well, good luck to you. And we'll talk to you soon. So hangs up the phone. And then immediately, I think he called Dale Coin Racing. I says, Dale, now that Stingray is signing with Hunkos, who's going to be your driver? And I think this kind of lit a fire under everyone's seat to get a move on. Because Dale was under the assumption that we were working towards a contract. I mean, we were in discussions as if we were working towards a contract, and we were. And so I think that I took him by surprise that we were not bluffing on talking to other teams. And then pretty soon, uh, we settled on a date for my first test in the beginning of January. And that went really well. So, I mean, there was a lot of behind the scenes to get to that point. But once we were in the seat, I had a really good test day. We signed the contract like a week later and announced the week after that. So there you have it. Well, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Can you reveal the name of the journalist or is that confidential? I don't know if you wanted to be known for that so I'll, I'll leave it to him if he wants to claim it he can <laughs> he can he, he can leave a comment below <laughs> there you go i'd just like to move it on now to, to to the driving side of things what is the jump like from indy lights to indycar how how big is it and, and what was uh, your first test like in the indycar yeah so i guess my first test that i did was last year in july i had a half day from the scholarship that i won in 2020 and so i got to test with andretti autosport actually which was kind of cool i got to have my same engine to IndyCar. So the transition wasn't super bad. It was a track that I knew with an engineer that I knew team that I worked with. And so the only variable was the car. And I felt like I got up to speed really quick. The first thing that I noticed was the horsepower, obviously, but it wasn't overwhelming. You know, it was, it was like the amount that I wanted out of the Indy lights car, the Indy car was giving me. So it was very nice. And then as the day went on track level grip came up, and I started to feel it in my neck. The downforce of the, the Indy car was a lot more. So the high speed felt like it had a lot more grip. But the low speed, the car is a bit heavier in Indy car versus Indy lights. And so I think that there was a bit more, I'll call it roll time, you know, where the car feels like it's rolling into the set in the middle of the, the low speed corners. And so that was interesting to get used to. But 
I mean, the the transition wasn't too bad. I think that the Indy car is just more well-designed Indy Lights car. I mean, they're both manufactured by Dolara, so they obviously wanted the transition to be smooth. I felt like the jump from driving styles from Indy Pro 2000 to Indy Lights was actually bigger. And I think it's just because the wheelbase changes, the weight changes, horsepower changes, downforce changes, tires change. Whereas, you know, Indy Lights, Indy Car, they're, they're trying to make that more of a smooth transition. So it's more of a farm series. And I'm similar, I'm sure it's similar, you know, F2 to F1, it varies team to team, right? You know, some, some people may experience that transition in different ways, but for me, it was, it was good. I was happy to be with them. And I guess every driver has their own, you know, own time limits on how they adapt to things. I'm guessing you adapt fairly quickly when it comes to changes from, you know, moving up the ladder from go-karts to cars. I'm guessing you had a fairly smooth transition. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. I will say that I think I'm a driver that does better with more experience. Like my transition might not be as sudden as other guys, but I might take a little bit longer and then get a little bit further. That makes sense. Kind of like the hair and the tortoise. <laughs> yeah. I know what you mean. I'd also like to ask, you know, what's your favorite type of track on the calendar? Obviously there's, for people who don't know, there's obviously oval street and road course. So yeah, just which, which one is your, is your favorite drive and what are you quickest at? Yeah, I would say road and street courses are my favorite just because they remind me of the go-kart days. Um, the street courses are just chaotic. I mean, you go to tracks like St. Pete is the first race of the year and it's, you know, down an airport runway into the downtown St. Petersburg area. And so you're dealing with the crown in the road, oil and grease that's in intersections, different surface changes, bumps, walls, everything. And so it just, you have to be on your toes a lot more. And I like that feeling. So I, I like the street courses a lot. Yeah, it's just amazing to watch, especially Indy cars, you know, especially around a track like St. Pete, the, you know, someone like Pato Award, for example, who's, you know, they call him Ninja Hands, you know, because he's just so fast. It's really cool to watch. So speaking of kind of other categories and stuff like that, has IndyCar always been kind of the, the the ultimate pinnacle end goal for you? Or do you have aspirations for to try to try other series, like to try push for Formula One or to try endurance racing at some point or NASCAR or, or any other series? I mean, if I get the chance, why not? I think IndyCar has been the goal for a while now. After I'd raced in Italy with CRG on the go-kart side of things, I realized that it, it's very nice to be home in a sense and know people in America. And the culture is a little bit different here. And I also think for a driver, from the driver aspect, the racing is a bit more competitive than it is in F1. That's not to say that you know the guys at the back of the F1 pack can't win. It's just you have to get really, really, really lucky. And an IndyCar, I think that you'll see smaller teams be more competitive throughout the season. They may not be as consistent as, you know, like a Penske or Ganassi, but they're going to be equal at, or if not better than at some events. So mm. for a young driver, I mean, you'll, you'll see guys step from F2 to IndyCar because of that same thing, I think. I mean, you look recently, Marcus Erickson, Roman Grosjean, Callum Ayla, just to name a few. I think those are all guys that missed the racing aspect of their career. You know, they wanted to be competitive again in a way that allowed them to race. You know, they weren't just fighting themselves. They were racing other people and that elevates your game. You know, I think for anyone racing yourself can only get you so far, you know, a test day can only do so much for you, but you're going to learn a lot more being on track wheel to wheel with other drivers. Mm. You mentioned those other F1 drivers who've obviously kind of transitioned over to, to IndyCar. And obviously we had the whole, shall we say, saga with Colton Herta last year trying to, to, to get into Formula One. And obviously that came down to his, his super license. And there was a lot of talk saying that, you know, IndyCar is such a brilliant series. It is very, very competitive. And everyone has much 
not equal, but much better chances to compete at the top and to win more so than in Formula One. Obviously, Marcus Ericsson, a great example. He was a mid to backfielder in Formula One. He went over and won IndyCar races. Do you think it was it, it it's kind of shown a light that maybe the the FIA license points, a super license system is unfair and biased against IndyCar Absolutely. and other American series? Absolutely. I mean, I think IndyCar is probably the most underrated series in the world as far as competition level goes. But that's not to say that there aren't others that have that same same process, but it's disappointing to see when drivers can flood over from the European side of the world over to IndyCar and, you know, not dominant, but win races. And why couldn't some of the American drivers do the same? You know, the IndyCar drivers do the same over there, putting in the right right circumstances. So I don't know. I think the Colton Herta deal is always interesting just because he's young. He hasn't really proven himself yet, but I mean, he's obviously a hot shoe. He's won races. So it'd be interesting to see how he did over there. I think it'd be more interesting to see someone like a, a Scott Dixon or a Joseph Newgarden that has confirmed that, you know, they're, they're a champion and do well consistently. I, mm-hmm. I would like to see them in an F1 seat just to compare. <laughs> I think a lot of people would. <laughs> yeah. And I, I also think there's other variables, right? Like, for those drivers to come here, they have to learn all the new tracks and new systems, but mm. it's probably a bit more simple compared to F1. There's a lot of technology basis that has to go on over there. So I think for any driver making the transition over to that side of the world would have to do the same thing, learn the tracks, learn the series, learn the team. So mm-hmm. there's just a lot that goes into it. Mm. I've got a little bit of a, a different question, but along this along similar lines. Do you, do you take inspiration from the rookies that have come in last year and done such a good job, like Malukas, Ilot had a strong season, God as well? Does that give you a boost heading into this new season that you think, oh, okay, I can do do something similar? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having David be my teammate, I don't see why that's out of the range for me to do the same, you know, fight for the Rookie of the Year award and be competitive in the championship. You know, the team that I'm with, Deal coin with Rick Ware Racing. It's it's a good competitive team, but it's a small operation. So we're going against the juggernauts of you know Penske and Ganassi. But at the same time, I think it gives us a leg up a little bit because you know as a rookie, you're underestimated. People don't expect you to do much, but it also gives you no pressure, right? We can we can work on our program and adapt quickly. Whereas other guys, they may not be so committed to changing directions as we can. So it is it is comforting to see rookies come in and do well in such a recent time period as last year or the year before. As well, you know, working with the engineers, obviously so crucial in any, any form of racing, but how have you gone about, you know, working with your new engineers at, at Dale Coin and, you know, building a relationship with them? And, and how, what essentially what I'm saying is how do you go about building a strong relationship with an, with an engineer? Yeah, it's actually very tough because there's such limited off-season testing you don't have that rapport to build during the off season. You have to do it during the season. And so I've been trying to stay in contact with them as much as possible and just making the most of the days when we are on track. You know, we had the the spring training test at Thermal Club earlier this month. And that allowed us to just establish a baseline. You know, when I say I have a two out of five understeer, my engineer may think that that's my version of four out of five. You know, he doesn't know. And so just as we progress, we got to make sure that our communication is not only efficient, but thorough and that we can, you know, confirm things quickly and not have to chase our own tails to, to make sure that what I'm saying is what he understands. And so I guess that just comes with, you know, any sort of relationship, right? Spending time together. So I, I go to the shop, I'll do the pit stop practices, spend time with the mechanics, the engineers, obviously watching video, going through data, post-event and pre-event. So 
the things that pay big dividends in the long run because once you're on track, you're just trying to survive, it seems like. You know, you're learning as much as you can as fast as you can. It's like drinking water through a fire hose, you know. So <laughs> it, you, you, you do a lot more learning away from the track in between events. And are you okay with the mechanical side of things? And how, also, how do you like a car to be balanced? You know, do you like it a little bit more on the nose? What, what, do, you, what do you like from a car? I like a car that's fast. So whatever that is. Good answer. Yeah. I think that it changes from series to series. Indy Lights loved an oversteery car. If you had any sort of understeer, you were losing time. And so you had to drive on that ragged edge all the time. And it was very uncomfortable to drive. <laughs> and so I think some drivers adapted well to that. Some others, it just didn't match their driving style. Whereas any car, it seems like more of a neutral. It's just more well-balanced, right? So you got more more room to work on the damper side of things, more room to work on the mechanical side of things, bigger tires, softer tires. So all of that pays big dividends to, to a driver that likes a neutral car because you can tune it how you want it. What's really cool too is, you know, I think last year, David, my teammate, he had a hard time uh, working well with Takuma Sato. I think that they wanted a different car for their driving styles. And so David would take the car this direction and Takuma would go this direction and they can never cross-reference. And so they were kind of fighting each other in a sense on, you know, what, what makes a fast race car. And I think, you know, based off the two days that I've spent with, with the team, David and I like a similar car and we give similar feedback on changes. So that's going to allow us to work, I think, more efficiently once we get into racing season. And sorry to ask so many technical questions. I've just got one more. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned something about the, the dumpers there. How involved are you as a driver with the development of the dumpers? Because obviously that's one of the only things that IndyCar teams can do to get a leg up on, on the opposition. So how involved are you in that side of things with the engineers and things like that? I'm going to be honest with you. Not very, at least not yet. <laughs> I'm learning a lot because the dampers have been such a spec part in the past for you know the junior formulas. That, like you said, IndyCar is special because of that. Like that's that's what their main tuning tool is, is the damper programs. And so that changes team team to team. And so there's not a lot of it spilled out into the public air for me to pick up, you know, when I'm coming up to the junior ring. So like I said, I feel like I'm drinking water through a fire hose right now when it comes to data and all that. But, you know, we, we did try a few things at the thermal test and I have no idea what they changed, but... I give them feedback and they say, yep, that's what we expected. So for me, I think that to start, I'm just going to be pushing the right foot down as hard as I can. And then they'll tell me if I'm doing it right or wrong. That is a great attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I, love, I love that. That That's a real racer's answer, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, I have one personal question before we finish it up. You mentioned you've driven Laguna Seca. What is the corkscrew like in real life? Because I've only oh, ever done it on Gran Turismo <laughs> and I doubt it's the same. <laughs> No, it's insane. Well, and coming up the hill there, people don't, I think, realize how steep the climb is to get to the corkscrew and how blind it is. I mean, you're going into the brake zone and you're like, I still can't see the corner, but I'm going to brake now. And then by the time you see the corner, you're like, oh no, I'm going too fast. And so you just throw the car into the apex. And there's actually, there's a tree across the valley from the, the apex, of the corkscrew. And you got to aim the nose of the car at that tree. And you know that if you do that, you're going to land on the bottom end at the right spot. So you got to, you got to play with it a little bit. It takes a couple laps to figure it out, but it's insane. It's quite the drop. <laughs> yeah. If, if there was, if there was two corners in the world, I'd love to drive 
in a racing car, it would be the corkscrew and Eau Rouge Radion in Spa. Oh, yeah. I feel like they are the two best corners in world motorsport just because of how loon, loon, crazy I go with that one they are <laughs> because they're both sublime. You mentioned that you have to pick a tree and aim at the tree. That doesn't compute in my head. <laughs> Drive the car at several hundred miles an hour. Aim for the tree, lads. There, there you go. That's your turning point. That sounds yeah. insane. <laughs> yeah. Um, following on from that then, and as a kind of a, a final point, obviously you're, you're into your first season now in, in IndyCar. What's what's the expectation for this year? What are you most looking forward to and what are you hoping to achieve? I think an easy goal is rookie of the year, but you know that's <laughs> down the road. We'll find out how we're doing it towards the end of the season. I had some good advice, though, at the Thermal Club test. Max Pappas is a former driver in IndyCar and pretty well-known, I think. And he gave me some good advice. And he, what he said to me was this. He said, every driver here deserves to be here, and they all have speed within them. Just as a rookie, you have to wait for it to come out. Picture, picture yourself five years from now, how good you're going to be. That's who you're racing against. You know, Don't expect to come into the series and dominate on day one because that would mean that the rest of the series was underperforming. And so that was interesting for me to realize, like, yeah, no, that's totally true. This is even before I was on track. So it humbled me a little bit so that I didn't get a big head before I went out there and tried to set the world on fire. But what he told me was just some simple goals that he wished he would have made as a young driver that would have maybe helped him later on in his career. He said, for the first four events, don't even think about anything else other than finishing every lap and staying on the lead lap. If you do that, you're going to have more experience and more confidence than you would if you were quarter second quicker and then put it in the wall halfway through the race. He said, that's going to deflate your balloon so fast that you'll never be able to build it back up. He says, the, the early stages is just a building a foundation, and then from there on, you can fine-tune it. So we get that foundation right first, and then you can move on. Yeah, I think that's fantastic advice, especially for any young potential drivers listening. So I suppose then... With the first race coming up, I believe it's the 5th of March. It's only a couple of weeks away. Yeah, Is that is go. that kind of wh where you're getting to now in your mindset is just to kind of keep as calm as possible and just keep that in mind, just finish the race. Get yeah, through it. Yeah, I think so. There, There is a balance though, right? Like the driver in me was like, I want to be P1 <laughs> every session. And so I guess it's my job to figure out where that balance is. You know, where, where do I want to push? When do I want to push? And I think that's why we have practice sessions, right? You know, we can go deep in a break zone and go in the corner and see where we end up and then try it again on the next set of tires with a different setup and see if it does the same thing. That's just part of the, the research and development that a driver does with themselves as they're getting into a new car. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I can't be afraid of crashing in that sense. You know, I got to be able to be willing to push the limits and experience those faults and make those mistakes. And then I can adapt from there. That's part of building the foundation. You know, you mm -hmm. got to fill in the cracks a little bit, essentially. And so I think for me, I'm just going to do the best that I can and come out of the gate strong. You know, St. Pete's a track that I've, I know and I've done well at and I have experience. And I think that once we get into the race, it'll be a whole new ball game for me. I don't really know what it, it feels like to be in the car for two to two and a half hours with pit stops. Mm. And so I think that I'll have to pace myself a little bit and, you know, keep my head on straight. But that's part of the learning curve. I just know that I think my biggest goal is to develop speed throughout the weekend and make sure that I'm closing that gap to my teammate. Well, that's a great place to leave off. IndyCar does return on March 5th with the Grand Prix of St. Petersburg. And that's St. Petersburg in Florida, not Russia, if any of you on this side of the pod might have been a little bit confused by us mentioning St. Petersburg throughout that. And it is available to watch on Sky Sports F1 for anyone in the UK and Ireland. 
And that was a special bonus. We actually have another interview for you with the author of Driven to Crime, a new book which looks at corruption through the world of motorsport. Our very own Tiller and Oscar sat down with author Crispin Besley earlier today. And here is that interview right now. Enjoy it. Well, hello and welcome to the Everything F1 podcast. Today we've got a a nice little interview lined up, actually, about someone who's written a book from the motorsport world. And I think you'll find it interesting, all of our fans. Alongside me from the Everything F1 team, though, today to help me with this interview is Oscar. Hi, Oscar. How are you? Hi, James. Yeah, very well. Thank you for this. Same morning, the weekend's almost here. And testing has begun, of course, as well. Yeah, testing is on the TV to my left as we speak. So, yeah, I'm keeping an eye on the on the times and it's just good to see some Formula One racing cars on track, isn't it? It sure is. Yeah, I think the the winter period's always a bit always a bit sketchy for us F1 fans as we as we twiddle our thumbs and desperately find ways to create content without without the fascinating season underway. So yeah, I'm glad that period's over and I'm looking forward to see who comes out on top. Me too, me too. Well, let's talk about our guest then. I'll introduce him here. Crispian Besley. Hiya, Crispian. How are you? Good morning, James. Good morning, Oscar. Nice to meet you both. For our fans that might not know who you are, could you give us a brief outline of who you are and what you have done within the motorsport world? Sure, yeah. So I, I'm, first of all, I'm a first-time and pro- probably a, a, an only-time author. I've had a lifelong passion for motorsport, specifically single-seaters. I tried my hand at Formula Ford, but so it gives you a bit of indication as how old I am in the late 70s. So I, I think... Um, I'm not sure if this is true or not, but my my first race definitely was at the Formula Ford Festival at the end of 77. And I'm told, although I've never been able to prove it, that that, my heat, I think I came nearly last, actually, but my heat was won by a certain Nigel Mansell. But certainly over the course of the next couple of years as a teenager, I I proved to be pretty adept at getting sponsorship, which I needed, obviously, to fund my ambitions. And I shared the track with the an exaggeration to say I raced against, but I certainly shared a track with several future Formula One stars at the time, or who became Formula One stars, including the, the old, older listeners to your show will remember the names of Mike Sackwell, Chico Serra, Kenneth Atchison, and various others. As I say, Man- Mansell, I think, only shared the track with once. I, I actually even beat John and Palmer oh, as wow. well at once. So I, I wasn't that uncompetitive, but as I, I showed, you know, in those days, Formula Ford 1600 was like karting is now. It was the re- main route into single-seater racing. So that's how I started, and, and that has relevance, I suppose, to the genesis of the book, because... I was up against people who, you know, work 24-7 just to buy a new set of tyres and were probably were definitely much more mechanically oriented than me. They may be the sons of garage owners. And, you know, I was always fascinated by how, you know, how other people funded their sport because I had to work very, very hard. This was before the internet, obviously. You know, I had to write written presentations and go out and pitch myself to, to people. So I, I was up against people like that. I was up against people who clearly, even those days, were trust fund kids or sons of very wealthy parents. And then the other end of the scale, James, was people who were probably a bit older than most of us, racing for fun, but but very, very well-funded. And it became clear that some of those drivers, no names mentioned, were funded by rather more nefarious means. I've come across a lot of people with criminal records, and and, and so that, that's what really led to this book being written. Right, okay. So, so let's get into the book. So the, the book is called Driven to Crime, is that correct? It, it is, yeah. And it's about, obviously, people using nefarious 
methods of, of obtaining sponsorship money or, or money to, to kind of fund their habit in, in the motorsport world. Obviously, there, there are lots of kind of dodgy dealings around kind of Formula One that we've heard over the years. And I think you mentioned a few of those in your book, don't you? Which, which ones jump out to you as kind of the most kind of extreme cases of nefarious well, well j- 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 just to clarify, James, the, the, the genesis of the book, as I say, goes back to my fascination, which I still have, about how people fund motorsport. And, and, and that's that's what started. As I got further and further, and I, I knew most of the well, the majority of the stories I've written about, I knew already, right. required further, which obviously. But the more I the more I researched it, the more it came. The, the, you know, the title of the book really chose itself. But, but it should be pointed out that, you know, you can flick through the, <clears throat> excuse me, introduction page and read someone like Max Mosley and say, well, hang on, Max wasn't a criminal. And indeed he wasn't. I'm, I'm making very clear he wasn't. But mm. there, are, there are various people, which I'll come on to in a moment, but various characters who were, if you like, the victims of crime. So they were associated with motorsport, but they, they absolutely were not criminals. And, and indeed, just to expand on that, not all of, by no means all of the stories relating to Formula One actually are necessarily related to the funding side. But in answer to your question, so yeah, I mentioned Max Mosley. Most people will know him as the former head of the FIA, very high profile man, sadly died a couple of years ago. Why is he in the book? He appears in the book in various different places, but there's a chapter on him. His connection with crime, if you like, I suppose starts with the fact that anybody who knows about him will know that he was the son of Sir Oswald Mosley, who was the head of the, the, the Red Shirts, and you know, v- very controversial figure to the point that he was interred, i.e., imprisoned with his wife in the Second World War. So Max grew up effectively, you know, orphaned from his parents, and you know, from the age of about three. That that was that was, you know, and and that that was a pretty bad legacy to have. His parents entertained Hitler, amongst other people, at their wedding. He went on, as we know, to become owner of the March Formula One team. He was a, a, a respected racing driver in his own right, became a major shareholder of March F1, who were very big in the 70s particularly. And then latterly, after he became head of the sport, got embroiled in what was a, a criminal trial, but it, it was not against him. He was basically exposed for his bedtime past you know proclivities yes. and the book makes it very clear that you know what you do in the privacy of your own home and bedroom is completely up to you but in doing so he brought it was a sting operation there've been lots of theories as to how that came from where, or where that came from as max said himself before he died you know plenty of, you know I got plenty of enemies you know and there is there are a couple of very obvious suspects which I'm not going to point my finger to on this podcast but but ultimately he ended up in court and closed down the one of the tabloid newspapers who had you know been responsible for publicizing that so that's why he's in it another victim of crime more related to, or even more related to formula one was a lady called uh giovanna amati and she was the last female or lady to try and qualify for a, a formula one grand prix mm-hmm. susie wolf some of your younger listeners will say, well, what about Susie Wolf? Well, Susie was a test driver, obviously now the wife of Toto, but never actually even tried to qualify for a Grand Prix. Giovanna did. And the story, again, that might be of interest to the, the, certainly younger viewers who wouldn't have known about it. She was the, la- the fifth and last lady to try and qualify for a Grand Prix and failed to do so. What Does that make her a criminal? No, it doesn't. But she was, what a lot of people won't know is that she was 
as a young, well, a teenager, and she was a great friend of Elio De Angelis, who went on to be a Lotus Formula One driver and Brabham Formula One driver, sadly killed in testing in, a, in an F1 accident done at Ricard. But they were yeah. very good. Giovanna and Elio were very good friends. They were, both came from similar backgrounds, i.e. very wealthy Italian Roman-based parents. And it was Dalio who got his friend into motor racing initially. She was kidnapped in 1977, I think it was, shouldn't know that, by a a, a mafia group. And at at that time, there was an awful lot of politically related kidnappings going on. The law courts were extremely keen that ransoms were not paid because they were just closed down that form of revenue she she was the daughter of the biggest cinema chain owner in rome and when she was kidnapped the judge made it very clear or or the judiciary made it very clear that her father should not and 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 could not and should not pay the ransom which was around about nine hundred thousand pounds which was a lot of money back then a lot of money now but it was even more then um Mm. because cinemas in those days unlike now, were all is a, is a cash business. He was fortunate in that although his assets were frozen, he t- it coincided with the, the launch of the first Star Wars film, which was an absolute blockbuster smash hit. And he was able to use the cash revenue to raise an enormous amount of money. His wife, Elia Giovanna's mother, was a former pretty well-known actress, so she was quite wealthy in her own right. She pawned her jewellery. Even their staff put in their own money. And long story short, I was released, but it became very clear that she was the victim, not only of kidnap, but also Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome actually is when the actor falls in love or, or, or sympathises with her captive. Bunn's made it very clear, by the way, she did not fall in love with this guy, Daniel Nieto, but it's very clear, conversely, that he had fallen for her. And when she was released, the police monitored her activities and movements, realized that this guy was not only sending her flowers, but that they were very much still in contact. And they said, words effect, you know, if you don't cooperate with us, then you'll be, you know, associated with crime yourself. And she, she, you know, very loyal, but she agreed to meet this guy in a palazzo for coffee or drinks and a sting, the police sprung on him and arrest him. And he, he in himself, although not directly or not at all related with motorsport, was an interesting criminal. He was arrested, he escaped, he was imprisoned, subsequently he escaped, and many, many years later was caught, right about 10 years ago, travelling on a Swiss train, and the ticket collector noticed a specific tattoo on his neck which was associated with criminality called the police and by the time they arrived at the next stop they arrested him and, and finally imprisoned him for the, for the final time but by, by which time he was in his 70s but that that that, that was marty who let's say still a very good racing driver not quite good enough to make it an f1 continued racing and i believe she still does race now in her 60s and instructs younger drivers as well so she she that that's one name that I, I suppose jumps out. I'm just re- reading some of the blurbs. Obviously, I've got, yeah. I've got a few little prompts here. Obviously, some of the some of the stories involve kind of drugs and yeah. kind of that, that's the drug smuggling that it was it was involved in the sport and even to murder it within the book as well. You've got a few different stories. So, so what happened with the kind of drug running and drug sm- smuggling within the within the world? Well, I, I, I guess that, that well there, there was there were several of those. Perhaps not so much in Formula One that there. 
there were some interesting people, Joe Lutie, jo- Joachim Lutie, who is chronicled in the book, but I can come on to him in a moment. I, I suppose peripheral to Formula One, and you can't get much bigger than, than the Colombian connection with drugs. There was a, a chap <laughs> called R- Ricardo Londono, who, like right. Giovanna, never qualified for a Grand Prix. But, it, but his, his name, and I remember watching him in period, he, he, Ricardo Londono, his name, and I kid you not, was actually, full name was Ricardo Londono Bridge. Seriously, very unlikely, but entirely genuine full name, proper name. And he, I came across him when he was racing in, he raced an X-Works Lotus 78, not not in JPS colours, but he, he raced that, ultimately got into Formula One. He was funded incredibly well, but he was involved in drugs. He was born in Medellin, which is Colombia's second biggest city in 1949. He, he was a daredevil as a teenager. He raced bikes, cars, boats, and he he's he, he was clearly had some skill. He was certainly a brave man, which earned him the nickname Cuchilla, which I think translates as razor, which tells you something. He started by competing in local stock car races in the 70s, but built a great reputation for himself. But then got involved, as I say, with, with fund his his sport, I suppose, through drug running. He was, as I say, got, got as far as racing with Colombian money in, I think at Silverstone it was, when I saw him in the Aurora AFX Championship, which was for Formula One cars, and then moved on. And his ma- main contact was with Pablo Escobar, and you can't get much bigger name in, in drug <laughs> running than that. Escobar himself was a racing driver or, or certainly one of his hobbies or pastimes was racing and they they, they did they were I, I think very similar in age only a few months apart in age and their paths first crossed at a hill climb in his home city and that led inevitably to a connection that led to financial support for Londona's racing and that ultimately benefited his international ambitions in the short term but ultimately was what led to his downfall he tried to qualify an ensign Formula One car. He was actually quicker in testing or or, or sorry, pre-race testing than several other drivers, including you know, the stars of, of the time. I think upset one of the drivers, which was Rosberg, who brake tested him in the going into the pit, pit lane. That caused a lot of controversy. And long story short, he was ultimately, although he was entered in the race, he was ultimately, having been assured he would qualify for his the equivalent then of a super license, he was he was barred from racing. And Bernie Eccleston, who by that time had risen to the top of the sport, was very keen that you know this guy was not allowed to. People knew of his criminal connections and was not allowed to take part and, and tarnish the sport. Ultimately, he. Uh, retired he went back into motor racing never got back a chance to race a Formula one car again but by the time he had done that through his friendship with pablo escobar he was very well connected in the colombian drugs racket he started a business in which he used his contacts to sell boats planes helicopters but all to recognize drug traffickers and that that brought him even closer to the illicit trade and ultimately, I think it was about 1,200 kilos of cocaine was discovered at one of his properties. A couple of years later, the Colombian courts issued a confiscation order. All his classic cars, his property, valued then at $10 million, which was, again, a lot of money, was seized. Mm-hmm. Managed to avoid imprisonment, but by that time, he'd accumulated some very unpleasant enemies. And one of the few assets he'd been left was a beachside hotel. He was staying there one night in 2009 by his family and friends and just about to leave the 
beat the, the restaurant and six hitmen appeared on motorcycles and shot him dead. So so that, that was a, you know, a, a, a very well chronicled story at the time that some of your younger readers may know about, not, not know about it. You, um, you mentioned a name there, Crispian, and I'm, I, I'm going to jump in and it might not be anything, it might not be anything in your book at all, but one of the, one of the names that comes up and it is kind of linked with a potential for being a criminal is Bernie Eccleston. He was he right. part of the great train robbery, like everyone suggests. <laughs> okay, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm glad you prompted me on Bernie, James. Bernie, you know, very good point. Bernie, hugely successful. Anybody listening to this will know who he is, so he doesn't need mm-hmm. any explanation. And everyone said, a lot, a lot of people said to me, where's the chapter on Bernie Eccleston? Well, the answer is, Bernie hasn't yet being convicted of any crime okay <laughs> and therefore and, and if i wrote that he had done then i think he'd come after me and sue me but he of hasn't. course he would he you know he's been you know he, he's a very very successful businessman he may have you know upset lots of people on the way he's made a lot of friends a lot of enemies along the way and most likely you know, or most specifically rather with the tax authorities actually <laughs> you, you you alluded james to the connection with the great train robbery well but Bernie did know, you know, he, he was a contemporary, if you like, of a guy called Roy James. Now, Roy James, you know, subject close to my heart. And there, and there is a chapter on Roy James, by the way, who didn't right. get into Formula One, but wanted to. He was a, a very promising young Formula Two driver, Formula Junior driver, I beg your pardon, you know, who had basically, was, I'll come back to Bernie in relation to this. That's fine, you carry on. He was a small time cat burglar, really. And he was a trained silversmith. So he'd go around breaking into unsuspecting people's houses and specifically stole silverware, which he would then go and melt down, make into other items, which he sold to none other than the Harrods in, wow. in the day. He got involved through his connections and, and with the leaders of or, or, or the gangsters behind the Great Train robbery. And again, for your younger readers, this goes back to the 60s. So I, even I was only just alive. And it was very, very well documented at the time. Roy James has always been sort of labelled as the getaway driver. You know, and in those days, everyone used Mark II Jags. That was the getaway car of choice. <laughs> but Roy, Roy James is extremely miffed that in planning the the getaway, i.e. The, 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 the stashing of the bullion into cars, which they, they then went to hide in a, in a local farmhouse in Buckinghamshire. But he was he was very miffed. He wasn't able to use his souped-up Mark II Jag and had to. He was the driver of one of the Land Rovers, which, which they stashed the, the, all all the loot in. They, they also used a, an ex-army World War II truck. So, but he he's been labelled as one of the getaway drivers, and indeed he he did use his skill when they suddenly got rumbled and had to move out of the farmhouse very quickly. So he was then able to use. But this was after well, you know, days after the robbery, he was able to use his Mark II Jag and disappeared off to take his share of the loot up to London. He was his connection with Formula One. I'll come back to Bernie in a minute. His connection with Formula One is he also at one stage nicked Mike Hawthorne, who was the 1958 world champion, uh, and and as you will probably probably will know from history, he did nick Mike Hawthorne's Mark II Jag, wow. which, which he subsequently returned. And after Mike Hawthorne died, he returned the BRDC British Racing Driver Club badge to the family, which was you know fairly <laughs> decent of him. But the wow. connection with the connection with Bernie is. You know, Bert Bernie was a motorcycle dealer. He was, as people will know, was behind a couple of drivers at the time. He was a friend of Roy James. When Roy James, Roy James was the first 
of the group to be imprisoned and, and actually therefore the first to come out of prison. The first person he went to see was his old mate Bernie. And right. who by that time, we're, we're talking the 70s, by that time was not only involved, heavily involved in, but owned the Brabham Formula One team. He bought from indirectly from Jack Brabham, actually directly from Ron Toronac. Roy, Roy was in his 40s by that time and said, you know, I, I'd, I'd like a drive. Bernie made it very clear, well, in, in your 40s, you're far too old to be any sort of racing driver, let alone a Formula One driver. And the job he gave him, so there's a direct connection. The job he gave him was mm. to make one of the trophies using his skills as a silversmith. And a lot... So there's again a suggestion that he makes the or he made the trophy that's given every year to the Formula One world champion. That's not true. But what he did do is make a trophy, which I've seen photographs of, and it's pretty hideous, which was <laughs> present which was presented for years to the organizer or the best organized Grand Prix of the year. And and those the, the various various Grand Prix organizers received that on the annual basis without knowing who had actually made it. You're you're your connection, your your allusion to the fact that Bernie was involved in the Great Train robbery, um, I've quoted it in the book, but just what you said, a lot of people have asked him, you know, were you behind it? I don't know whether he was or not, but he's always laughed it off and said, no, no, you know, it was a far small, far too small a job for me. If I if I was behind, if I wanted to do anything like that, I would go for a bigger job. So he wasn't, <laughs> no, in, in that respect. But he but he was a friend of Roy James, as was Graham Hill, who by that time also had retired and become a, a team owner with his own Hill team. And and that was another one of the Roy James's first port of call. But Roy James never got back into Formula One. He did actually through the charity and help of a few friends race a car a few times right. by which time he was, he was way way past it and i mentioned nigel mansell but he he incurred mansell's wrath by punting him off the track and race at mallory park but so that 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 was his connection going back to bernie directly bernie was involved of course in the bribery scandal with gerhard Gubowski, who was a banker who took a bribe. So Bernie right. did go to court for that and testified against the banker. And there's there's a chapter there for on Gerhard Kabowski, but not on Bernie Eccleston. Bernie right, Eccleston, okay. the, the other side of it. And Bernie, it's very well documented, subsequently went on trial himself, but did not receive a criminal conviction for the bribe. And in fact, he paid off more than the bribe to the German authorities under, under the German judiciary system, which was completely le legitimate. So that, that that's left hanging. But but Bernie has his current issues going on with the local tax authorities here, as you will Yes, know. absolutely. I'm sure. I'm sure he's 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 dodged it for many many years. But we'll we'll have to wait and see what happens with all that sort of sort of stuff as it unfolds. Obviously, no one wants to say anything libelous at this point. No, no, absolutely not. No. <laughs> <laughs> Oscar, do you have a, a question for Crispian? So Crispian, of course, I'm more of a <clears throat> more of a modern motorsport fan, I'd say. So I guess looking into the into the present and the future now, do you think that criminality that exists within motorsport ownership is diminishing in the modern age, where everything that we do is so much more publicised on social media? I'm not sure I know the answer to that, Oscar. But but I think that 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 you know, we anybody involved, even a on the periphery, even as a spectator, you know, it's, it knows that motorsport is an incredibly expensive pastime. And I say, even as a spectator, you know, the, the, the costs of getting into a Formula One Grand Prix are huge. If you're a participant, even at the low levels or historic levels like me, the costs are huge. The higher you go in the sport, the greater the costs, obviously. Formula One's seen 
a huge influx of interest, partly because of the Netflix series, which we all know about, and, and that's wonderful for the sport. But and e- e- but even with the cost capping, it, it's still massively expensive. Mo- motorsport, I think, motor, you know, that there's been criminality in motor racing since the word go. In the same way, there have been pay drivers in the sport since the word go, and there still are, and that, and that will continue. Motor racing is there more? Is there more? criminality in motorsport than there are in others i'll come back to your question in a minute but you know i don't know enough about horse racing but i do you know if i did i could have written a book on that it might not have been as varied or i would argue as interesting but there's a huge amount of corruption in motorsport sorry, in, in equestrian sports sorry as there is in boxing as there is in football you know motor racing maybe attracts and has attracted more than its fair share compared to other sports and part of that whether it's formula one or you know in the lesser formulas part of that is because of the logistics so if you're talking about it it provides an ideal opportunity to move drugs and other contraband around it's also because of the international nature it's a brilliant way if you're a criminal a brilliant way of laundering money it also attracts as we all know at any level people hugely competitive but hugely egotistical so you know the the book doesn't just concentrate on drivers funding their sport it also there are a lot of egos involved in in the sport and who are listed in the book and that includes team owners sponsors who who are just dreamers and and by definition are very you know easily attracted to people who are not necessarily honest if, if you're a struggling formula one team owner certainly back as far as the 90s but even much more recently much much more recently and i there's one person who's not in the book who i've met personally but unbelievably dishonest not yet if he had a criminal record he would be in the book and when he does get when when he finally does go down he'll go into any second edition but involved in in very recent years you two certainly and many of your listeners will know of the sponsorship deal it's quite quite high profile but it is it attracts the sport attracts dreamers and dishonest people and i and and answer your question of i i think that it will always be prevalent. Where, prevalent where, wherever there's money, there's crime. Okay, I'm gonna take a take a just a, a guess really at who you were alluding to. I'm not gonna. We, we, we don't have to confirm or deny. But does it have to do with a small energy drinks company that came in a few years ago on the back of an American team by any chance? No comment. <laughs> but- well, what's your favourite story from your book then? That that, that kind of jumps out <clears throat> and kind of really took you aback when you did all the research into it there, there are so many I'm, I'm not sure that they were necessarily formula one related oh, that's fine no no but there, there are some there are some pretty horrible ones and there's and, and gruesome ones as well i i guess again a lot of your readers will know about it but charles brockett lord charles brockett was well documented for and went to prison for cutting up, destroying some of his Ferrari collection. And I, I put some, I, I, I hope I've dispelled in my book and the chapter on Charles Brockett, some of the myths. Basically, he, he, he ran his family home, Brockett Hall in Hertfordshire, as a conference centre. He, he inherited it, um, spent a lot of money building it into a very, very successful business. And as a sideline, he started collecting cars. And he employed actually an old Formula Three driver, 
Formula 3 in those days being, or, or, this guy came out of racing 500cc cars and he employed this guy as a mechanic stroke engineer stroke museum curator who helped him buy primarily Ferraris, a couple of Maserati at the time in, in the 80s when these cars were rocketing in value. He built up a collection of these things. Unbeknown to him, this guy, Jim Bosito, was actually ripping him off. So, you know, if you found a car for £100,000, he'd charge Charles Brockett. He'd say it cost £150. So he was salting away quite a lot of money on the side. And he, en he ended up by being murdered under very suspicious circumstances whilst living on the Brockett estate. But that, 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 he, he was clearly on the periphery of crime anyway, the criminal underworld. So that was unrelated to what Charles Brockett did. Brockett, when the Iran what? When the Iran-Iraq war first one started, Americans stopped traveling and therefore the and a lot of the business that he had done in his conferences were with American corporates. So suddenly his business was short of money. The banks had massively overlent to him. They, they re recognized the fact that the classic car market was going up, but that came to a shuddering halt because of all this at the end of the 80s. Brockett suddenly was short of cash. There was no, no one coming to use the, the conference facility and he needed money. And he and his wife was involved and two of his employees were involved. They needed to raise five million pounds. So they chose four cars and decided on an insurance fraud. And the story, the, the, the newspapers and media at the time said that this guy, Charlie Brockett had chopped these cars up and buried them under the 18 hole golf course and put one of them in the lake, which was a great, made great storylines. It wasn't true. In fact, much less romantic than that. He, they they, de they did dismantle them. And the, the relevance to motor racing, one of them was an NXO car. Brockett himself had also raced in historic cars and also in celebrity races as well. So that, that's connection with motorsport. What actually happened was that they dismantled the cars and they put them in a shipping container on the side of the A40. So not quite as romantic. His... And, and he was basically shot by his wife, who was a, a South American model who was highly dependent on narcotics and drugs. And it got to the stage she was so, so desperate that she was forging prescriptions in the local, uh, as Lady Brockett, in the local pharmacies. She was caught, reported to the police who interviewed her. She used her name and status and title to say, you know, you can't arrest me. You must know who I am. And they said, well, sorry, we have. And she complained to the commissioner and said, it's not me, you should be after, it's Charles. And that, that's, that's what blew Charles's cover. Charles actually, and, and the bottom line is, having put in the insurance claim, the insurance company, as insurance companies tend not to, didn't want to pay. The police were very suspicious because the cars were locked in a pretty secure unit on a very secure estate. So they, they, they had this on-running dispute with the police and the insurance company. Ultimately, they withdrew the claim because banks came back to them and said, we've screwed up. We've lent you far too much money. We were irresponsible. We will lend you more money on a very good deal. You've got 10 years to pay it off. And, and that, you know, a perfectly good business deal. In the meantime, Brockett withdrew his insurance claim. Most people don't recognize this, but he was still found guilty of perpetrating an insurance fraud, even though he took not one penny. So it's, 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 a, it's a good story. I've, I've spoken to Charles Brockett many times. He went to prison for it and came out very much a reform character. But as I say, that, you know, there are a lot of misconceptions in that story. And, and, and that, you know, amongst others, that's one of my favourites. And, and, I, and I think, you know, I'd, even though it's not directly Formula One related, I'd, I'd recommend to your listeners to look at. Okay, well, 
Tell us where, where our listeners can find your book then and what they're looking out for. You can locate it either directly from Evro, E-E-V-R-O, who are the publisher. You can buy it online from the inevitable online retailers, one specifically. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to mention the name. And and I it's also available in, I'd like to say all good bookshops, but it's certainly available via Waterstones and WH Smith, I believe, as well. But, but online or directly from Evro. Can we get your opinion on the, the current state of Formula One and, and, and who you think might perform well this year? Have you, have you been kind of looking at the pre-season? I, yeah, I'm, I, like, like you guys, I'm, anorak, I'm an anorak. So the first thing I'd say about the current F1 is I think there are too many races. So I, 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 I come from a time when there were so 15-odd races and, you know, that they were really special. I, I really think Formula One have overdone it on the one hand. On the other hand, I'm very excited by what Drive to Survive has done on, through Netflix. So, you know, it's bringing in more money. And say so at a time when you combine that with the cost cap, and that that I think is a really good thing. This idea, by the way, was pioneered way, way back by Max Mosley, and everyone dismissed it. But it is very exciting because it does ultimately even out the playing field. So you've got Red Bull who have less wind tunnel time anyway because of their success last year. And of course, they've been punished for the exceeding the cost cap. And whilst I'm a big Max fan, I think that's great because it, it levels them down to, I, I think, gives Mercedes the opportunity to catch up. I, I'm a big, big Lewis fan, but of course, I also support all the Brits as well. So I'd, lo- I'd, I'd love to see Max being challenged as he was the year before last, i.e. 2021, by Lewis. I think you're going to find if the Mercedes is half competitive, that George Russell will give Lewis a hell of a run. And that is that can only be healthy. I'd love to see, I'm a Ferrari aficionado as well, so I'd love to see Ferrari there in the mix. But also, I, I think, and it may, whether it's this year or next, James, I think the levelling out process really, really will come on, into its own. So this year, we expect there to be three teams in the mix. I'm very, I'm very confident of that. And, and maybe this year, but certainly by next year, you know, you're, you're wearing Aston Martin kit at the moment. I can see Aston being up there. Let, provided that Fernando doesn't cause too many upsets and ructions within the team. But I think he is he's very motivated. Yes. And I think Alpine as well, strangely. So I think that those five teams I I, I would expect to be in the mix. And if if, you know, if if that's achieved by this year, great. But if it's achieved even by next year, that's half of the current teams mm-hmm. in the mix for wins. But how about you? Who, who are you both rooting for? Well, I'm... I, I'm much like you, Crispian, actually. I'm I'm a, a British F1 fan. So whether that's a British team or a British driver, it, I do kind of get kind of coverage across the whole grid, really. I don't I don't have don't tend to have a driver bias, although I, you know, obviously just just the British. But I just like to see everyone doing well and like to see close competitive racing. If Ferrari, you know, are competitive and can kind of get back on the top step and and and, and stay there all season, I'd be very happy because it's been a long time since we've seen you know a, a dominant Ferrari team. I d- well, I don't want one do- one dominant team. I guess I just want entertaining races. What 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 do you both think about the prospect of more form- Formula One teams coming in? I think it's excellent. I spoke to Mario Andretti just before Christmas, and he was very confident that Michael was going to be able to bring a team in. Obviously, at that point, they hadn't dropped the the, the, the news of the Cadillac kind of partnership. So he he knew that was obviously in the pipeline at that point. So maybe that's what he was alluding to. I think they've got a very strong 
bid for it and I'm hoping that they do come in because I think you know having an, another American team now we've got three American races and now obviously the drive to survive has kind of broken the American market I think it can only be good for the sport yeah well I, I, I completely agree with you I think that you know a very strong team and particularly <clears throat> American team will bring in you know, America is a hugely important market. As you say, they've got three Grand Prix there this year. Uh, and if that brings in commercial backing, ev everyone, in my view, everyone's a, a winner. I think we've kind of ex expended all of our questions, really. One more plug for your book. It's called Driven to Crime, and it can be found at all good bookstores and afro.com. Is that correct? Uh, and and on, online as well. And everyone would shoot me for saying that, but it, it, it's, you know, you, you, everyone knows where to buy books. If they're going to do online, if you want, if you want a signed copy, then get one from Ebro because they, they, they've got the signed copies. But they're driven to crime, and it's true stories. No, nothing's been made up. I, I stress of wrongdoing in motor racing, and it includes victims of crime, but related to motorsport. And there's, there's lots of F1 stuff, and and there's lots of literally everything down to club racing, U, US racing as well. So there are about sixty. I should know. I actually, I actually haven't read the book myself, but. <laughs> obviously not not going to cover but there are there are 66 chapters and then probably another 25 sidebars so there's nearly a hundred stories of and not, not all of your readers will know all of the stories some will know some but there's plenty in there that you don't know which i hope will entertain people excellent well thank you very much for coming to speak to us on the podcast today crispian been really interesting great, great pleasure james nice to meet you and oscar too thanks, thanks so much crispian thanks so much bye all right. bye and there we go. That will do it for this episode. Thank you very much to Taylor and Oscar for that interview with Crispian. Thank you very much, Connor, for joining me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. And thank you, Stingray. It's been a really insightful interview. Yeah, thank you both for having me on. Thank you very, very much, Stingray. It has been an absolute joy talking to you. We wish you all the very best of luck in your rookie season with IndyCar. We will be following along as much as we possibly can. And Connor is our resident IndyCar expert. So anyone who wants to follow along with Stingray's career, Keep an eye out on everythingf1.com because we will have regular news and articles to do with Formula One and IndyCar and all of the series throughout this year. So nothing left for me to say except do check us out on all socials at Join F1 and don't forget to subscribe wherever you're listening to make sure you get all the latest episodes in your earlobes as soon as they drop. We'll be back next week with a review of F1 testing, which has just begun, and a preview of the Bahrain Grand Prix as Formula One finally returns. So we'll see you again. Thanks again.